Coming up, what an excellent day for really big rats. folks, and welcome to Minute 12 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist, minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And I'm Ian Hinden. And yes, we are joined once again by our friend Ian Hinden, and we will be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. Okay, so folks, if you remember, our last minute ended with the end of the prologue in Iraq and the beginning of Georgetown. And before we go into this minute, I just want to read from the book because, folks, we are now out of the prologue and into part one. Uh, So here we go. A reading from the Book of Blatty. One, the beginning. Chapter one. Like the brief doomed flare of exploding suns that registers dimly on blind man's eyes, The beginning of the horror passed almost unnoticed. In the shriek of what followed, in fact, was forgotten, and perhaps not connected to the horror at all. It was difficult to judge. The house was a rental, brooding, tight, a bride colonial gripped by ivy in the Georgetown section of Washington, D.C. Across the street was a fringe of campus belonging to Georgetown University. To the rear, a sheer embankment plummeting steep to busy M Street and, beyond, the muddy Potomac. Early on the morning of April 1st, the house was quiet. Chris McNeil was propped in bed, going over her lines for the next day's filming. Reagan, her daughter, was sleeping down the hall, and asleep downstairs in a room off the pantry were the middle-aged housekeepers Willie and Carl. At approximately 12.25 a.m., Chris glanced from her script with a frown of puzzlement. She heard rapping sounds. They were odd, muffled, profound, rhythmically clustered, alien code tapped out by a dead man. Funny. She listened for a moment, then dismissed it. But as the rappings persisted, she could not concentrate. She slapped down the script on the bed. Jesus, that bugs me. She got up to investigate. And that brings us right into this minute, which begins with Chris getting up out of bed to investigate that noise. And ends with her closing the window of her daughter's bedroom, which is strangely cold. All right. So Chris gets up out of bed and walks into the foreground of the scene to grab her robe, which was not hanging up. You you don't see where she gets it from, maybe a couch or draped over a little chair. She slips it on and then goes out into the hall. And... Now, I really like the attention to detail here. You see that her robe is half on as the shot changes from inside the room to outside. And she's coming through the door and she's still getting her right arm into that sleeve. Uh, The second shot picks up exactly where the first left off. But Keenan, these two shots wouldn't be from the same setup, would they? I I was looking at the angles and I suppose you wouldn't be able to see the first camera from where the second one is or vice versa. But I still feel like these would have to be separate shots uh, just because of the lights and everything else. Yeah. So it would be really rare back then to be shooting with two cameras um, as simultaneously. It's still pretty rare. They'll do it for like action scenes. And then increasingly, they'll use multi-cameras at the exact same time for comedies that like Judd Apatow started doing um, with the 40-year-old virgin specifically because they were ripping off um, Steve Carell's uh, chest hair and they Mm. wanted to capture it. They only do it once. And then he really started like doing that for comedies but usually no we're just filming with one camera at a time so um this kind of so you're talking about like um you know she is she's putting on this robe which we think of as kind of a chaotic movement but she's doing it Mm -hmm. the exact same in both in both shots yes yes 
Oh, you know, that, that's sort of a precept of what we call the continuity style of editing or the hmm. continuity style of filmmaking that we would cut on um, on uh, matching action that sort of hides the cut for us. And then, you know, Ellen Burstyn is a trained actor. She comes from theater primarily. So even, mm-hmm. even more than a film actor, a theater actor is trained to do the exact same thing, the exact same way um, mm-hmm. every time in terms of their blocking, even though, of course, you know, um, uh, their performance is going to be different every single time. You know, they're right, trying out right. different things. They're thinking about different things. But in terms of like where their body is or where their, their feet are or, or how they're messing with the prop, uh, you know, a lot of actors are trained to do it the exact same way every single take. Mm. Uh, so is this in like a, is this in a real house or is this on a set? Oh, I'm really glad you asked that, right? Because uh, the house outside is a real house. I'd love to know mm. if Blatty was writing about this particular house and whether they got that or not. But mm. but the interior of this townhouse is entirely on a set in New York City, so not even in Washington, D.C. And it will be, um, in the later scenes, uh, refrigerated. So even though uh, here we're dealing with the cold, like the set there is actually in a giant refrigerator um, so that we could see the actor's breath. That was something Friedkin insisted on. I was actually going to ask you because, yeah, in a minute we're going to go into this room and it's going to be very, very cold. And I know that in later shots, uh, Friedkin was refrigerating the room. But I wanted right. to see, like, do you think he was doing it uh, by this time or not yet? Um, I don't know, right? Because the only reason you would do that is to see the uh, the actor's um, breath. I mean, Friedkin is this of this generation, which we call the film brat. You know, they're, they're real film mm. assholes sometimes about things, right? <laughs> like, they're, so they're, as we talked about, like Friedkin shooting the French connection on the street and really doing these things or insisting mm-hmm. that people really punch each other. Um, right. Later on, Coppola <laughs> will um, will encourage Martin Sheen to really have a nervous breakdown. Martin Sheen and the apocalypse now punches through a mirror and cuts his mm-hmm. arm. And, and it's Sheen who's yelling, don't cut, don't cut, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, just crazy things like that. So I wouldn't put it past Friedkin to want to make the room cold. But mm-hmm. as we look at it, right? I mean, how do we know it's cold? Um, we just have the wind blowing through the window and Ellen Burstyn acting like she could pretend it's cold. Wow. Who knew? <laughs> Speaking of uh, pretending it's cold, uh, Ian, I, I believe you oh, yeah. have a story <laughs> about one time when uh, when you were doing a film. Oh, well, it's, so it uh, it wasn't a film, uh, but uh, I was taking a class over at uh, UNLV, and uh, it's actually it was a it's a pretty cool setup for the class because mm. I was taking it as an actor. Mm. But the class is for directors and actors. So it's a mix of directors who are getting to, you know, learn how to work better with actors, actors getting to improve their craft. And so it's just just all around. It's a great setup for everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, we were doing our final. And so for the final, the uh, professor is going to watch a director work with some actors, uh, give them some feedback mm-hmm. and just see how they respond to it and get it all kind of handled at once. Mm. And so uh, before our time slot, uh, you know, we're waiting before we go into the room. Uh, our director, it's me and an actress. Our director pulls us aside and he says, uh, hey, don't worry. We got this. I have a s- secret trick, which is going to make it so that we nail this scene. Okay. And it's a scene that's taking place in the cold. And so he he pulls out. He's got like, um, like a, he's got these ice packs (laughs) and so we like tape these ice packs to our bodies underneath our clothes (laughs) and so just we have these ice packs on under our clothes and it's like we go in and we do the scene and uh and actually uh well it's uh i wouldn't say that uh they uh 
helped. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, I it wasn't really thinking about them. I'm just kind of ignoring them, right. and, you know, just acting the scene. Yes, out, right. Yes. But then you and Lindsay, and, who are, are, you know, you're doing your work to uh-huh. prepare because I was there, too, in this class. Right. You know, uh-huh. your your active uh-huh. preparation is to how do you suggest that it's uh-huh. cold where you you wear winter coats? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have the, so you have these winter coats over you. <laughs> so I, I'm not I'm not sure. Did it feel cold? On, I mean, under that at all, or, or did it feel like nothing at all? Oh, well, yeah, that? it's like it's just like a like a big uh, cold compress, like right on your <laughs> stomach and your back. He had a few. He had quite a many, like <laughs> more than uh, you might need even for a picnic. Um, Was this director's name William Friedkin Jr.? <laughs> uh, in any case, like the scene, I thought like went off pretty well, right? And you know, like we we finished, and and the the professor was like, "Oh, I thought that was a great job. That was a great job." And that actually would have been the end of it, except for the fact that this director, they had to bring attention to this like this brilliant plan <laughs> of theirs, right? So as we're walking out of the room, he goes, "All right." remove the ice packs. And then we're like, okay. So we like lift our sweaters and we start taking these ice packs (laughs) off our body, our bodies. And it's funny because I recall then the professor going, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) And then what probably would have been like a, you know, a passing grade all of a sudden turned into like a lecture about um, the proper way to treat your actors and actresses, right? (laughs) To trust them with things. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so a mutual friend of ours, when I told him this story, he he had said, uh, hmm, has that director ever heard of a little thing called acting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't put put it past like Friedkin's generation or anyone from Friedkin's generation to insist that like, no, the actors really need this or they can't do it. Um, mm. And, you know, there's there's been that kind of philosophy in directors, major directors throughout the years. Like I'm thinking of um, in the 20s, Eric von Stroheim, who was mm. the great German director, but you might know from his part as... Um, Max and Sunset Boulevard as an actor, ah. you know, the butler. Mm-hmm. Um, like mm-hmm. he, he had these big epic biblical, biblical epics, biblical stories. And he would insist that the extras in the background would drink, not only drink wine, like real wine, mm-hmm. but also drink the best wine. <laughs> so, you know, the studio were like, like, why do you need them not only to drink wine or, but to drink the best wine? You know, we uh-huh. can barely see them in the background and the audiences know the yeah. difference. And he's like, well, the actors will know the difference. <laughs> they can experience the difference of really good wine. Ah. Well, you know what? If given the choice between uh, working with a director who made me drink wine on set or <laughs> one who taped uh, ice packs to my body, I don't know. It's not- <laughs> well, I, I need to step in and be a little wet blanket as a, you know, a film uh, film teacher of young people. Mm. Like, like, do not give your actors real wine. Don't get them drunk. <laughs> At, there's, there's handbooks of how actors can play drunk. It's very – I've mm. never had a drink and I had a whole feature film where I played a character who got smashed and people said they couldn't tell the difference. So, you know, you could – Yes. you could do it <laughs> yes be safe respect your actors respect their craft respect what they can do for you and that's why you hire there. them that's why you hire yes. them right yeah and then later on i mean um later on we do we are refrigerated for sure and you could mm. absolutely see the difference there because that's visual and we have yeah. you know our actors breathing out um and the, we had the set um starting at like negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit, something crazy like that because of the oh, amount yeah. of heavy, you know, um, film lights, we had to start mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that cold and then it right. would gradually warm up to, you know, right. 30 degrees. Um, now I love what the camera does here as it moves up from behind the railing to follow her. You don't even notice that you're behind the railing until it passes in front of us, obstructing right. our view for just a second. And then we're back again with Chris, just as another crash is heard. And Chris looks up, 
around and then down as if maybe she can't uh, uh, pinpoint where the sound is coming from. But then we cut to this angle from behind and below and both Chris and the audience look up as another crash is heard uh, beyond that attic door. Yeah, mm. so I, I think it's really interesting hearing. Um, I'm watching the movie a little bit differently than you two. I, I got tired mm. of the Amazon version and I, uh, <laughs> so I have a I have a Blu-ray rip, the kind that I would use for, for teaching in class. Mm. Um, and this is the of the version you've never seen. So I'm not sure if this is just the mm. 2000, um, you know, remix of it, but it's mm. in surround um, and a really mm. advanced surround. So these these noises everywhere, um, you know, they're coming from to the left and to the right, but but it feels like it's even coming from above or below you. Um, so this is a really, really sophisticated, cool um, uh, surround mix here that you're not you're not getting in the Amazon version, right? No, no, I'm just getting like the regular old stereo, huh? Which it still works, right? That's still yeah. that's still interesting, right? But yeah. but yeah, it makes it feel like it's all around you, which really helps mm-hmm. with uh, you know when Chris is yeah, why is she looking down? Where is it coming from? Right. And then uh, it, it's coming from the attic. It would seem to imply, but it sounds like it's coming from everywhere. Right, right. Now, guys, these are rather loud sounds. Mm-hmm. The book describes them as like rappings, tapping, scratching. In the movie, it sounds like a crash. It sounds like someone is like throwing something against the wall. Or and I would the- think like like you know if I'm a single mother or a divorced mm-hmm. mother, right? Like my child has fallen down in the other room. Right now, and and to that point, Chris seems puzzled but mm-hmm. not alarmed, right? Um, and and that just kind of like. I don't know. I don't know how that sat with me. Um, and I don't know if anybody has an explanation for that. Well, I think it's actually really interesting that her her reaction doesn't match our reaction. Because you're right. It's mm. loud. It's unsettling. We're concerned. And yes, yeah, she's interested, puzzled. Um, mm-hmm. In the book, right, You as you were reading, she's like annoyed more. She's like, I can't She's a little study. bit annoyed. Yeah. And it's actually supposed to be coming from Reagan's room. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really creepy scene where like it gets louder and louder and, and faster and faster and and then she opens the door and it stops. Yeah, but, and in the screenplay, yeah. it's similar. It's not this attic thing. It's coming from Reagan's bedroom. So we we mm. miss this moment where we're looking up at that at, at that. Right. Um, and then we, you know, because Laddie is writing the book and then writing this, adapting his own screen uh, his own book to the screenplay, um, right. he's able just to use some of the really cool prose that he has in the book. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I, I loved when you were reading. It says. Um, the sounds sound like alien code tapped out by a dead man. And he just uses yes. that in the screenplay. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but but there is this sort of disconnect that I like actually. I don't know about Ian mm-hmm. or anybody else. Like, I like that we um, we could be like, wow, I would be really concerned about that noise, and you're not. And it feels like you know, like uh, like the dramatic irony that's going on, right? Of like, uh, mm-hmm. like Chris, you're in danger here, right? Like, the ghost lie, <laughs> like Molly, you in danger, girl. Like this is a really <laughs> really big thing because yeah. we know that there's this demon on the other side of the world, and he has this 14 inch uh, plaster of Paris penis, and he's coming <laughs> to get you, right? Um, so it helps with that dramatic <laughs> irony that I associate with like um, the original Dracula or the, the film version of Dracula, Todd Browning's mm-hmm. Dracula, right? right. Where um, at that point, everybody who's watching that film knows what a Dracula is <laughs> and right. and Renfield doesn't. So like he's there with Dracula and Dracula is like, you know, I never drink wine. And Renfield's like, that's a weird thing to say. <laughs> and we're like, oh, that's actually fun. It's really fun to see him being stalked by this thing in front of us because it, it yes. makes us feel what like superior to him or, or i'm not sure but, but it's definitely fun we know something he doesn't we're right. we're a little bit more in control of the situation than he is right yeah and it's interesting that you bring up dracula um talking about 
for example, just even the original source material, the book, um, mm-hmm. there are some lines in the opening to that, like when you get into Jonathan Harker's journal that are now that you read them, they're downright funny. <laughs> um, there's a there's a scene where Jonathan Harker is in the uh, in the coach in the carriage, and he's surrounded by uh, the locals, and they're all whispering around him. And uh, you know he doesn't know what they're saying because they're speaking in a different language. So he gets out his uh, dictionary and he translates a little bit of it, and he reflects. He's like, "Oh, some of these words are a little bit unnerving. I've, mm. I'm seeing werewolf, and I'm seeing Satan and mm. hell, and something that could be a vampire. Hmm. I must, you know." <laughs> I must really ask the count about all of these quaint superstitions <laughs> when I meet him. <laughs> and, we, you know, as a modern reader, we read that and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, the count's going to tell you all about that stuff. Right. But <laughs> it's funny because, like, I, I imagine the first readers of Bram Stoker's Dracula, the, the book Bram Stoker's Dracula, they may not have known as much uh, about vampires right. as we do. They might not, they may, obviously, they, they didn't know as much about Dracula as we knew. Dracula is synonymous with a vampire, so right. much so that uh, Bram Stoker actually, you know, his uh, the the name for this character at first, uh, Bram Stoker mm. was deciding to call him Count Wampir, which is literally just Count Vampire. <laughs> he is a Count Vampire. <laughs> is, I, yes, hello, I am Count Vampire, right? Because, because the vampire was such an obscure, like, out of the way, just like lesser known uh, thing. It wasn't in the zeitgeist. It wasn't in popular culture. So you could get away with kind of like hiding it in plain sight. It's like, yes, my name is Count Vampire. <laughs> right, but right? if you if you had submitted a book that you had written to the publisher and like the bad guy here is like Dr serial killer yeah <laughs> they were like you have to you have to start over lester yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and you know i just recently read um robert Louis stevenson's uh the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde mm-hmm. and it's really interesting like it's a good book but it, it's it's a mystery it's a mystery mm-hmm. novel um so you know it's it was so successful that it ruined its own surprise right because now <laughs> we use that term and we know what it is so like the whole thing is set up where like people are like what is the deal with dr jekyll <laughs> and mr hyde he's protecting this guy mr hyde who nobody likes and is violent and mr hyde gets to go into his house and and leave from the laboratory door and, and why is that and why don't we ever see them in the same place even though they're, they're best friends <laughs> you know and so it it ruins it and and you know it's probably not as good of a book like in terms of its writing as Dracula. So at least right. Dracula has a lot more in- interesting things going on there. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like, like you can't ever read it with those fresh eyes anymore. Right. Ah, oh, which is, which is a pity. I mean, because now everybody knows about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde being the, Oh, wait, wait actually, <laughs> you know, no spoilers. Yeah. Right. But that, that is the, that's literally the last chapter. That's literally the last chapter of the book where they reveal that. And I was, I was like, wow. Oh my God, that would be so amazing to, to read that for the first time and see. So to kind of like uh, to Keaton's point though, about uh, this dramatic irony mm-hmm. about going through it the first time. Right. So, you know, uh, we have this luxury that, mm. you know, uh, we, we can look it up. We can see, oh, uh, Pazuzu. Pazuzu, we, you know, have Wikipedia these days. So we right. can see that he's uh, the personification of the, it's the Western wind? The Southwest, Southwest. wind, specifically. Okay, specifically, <laughs> Southwest. Yeah. So he's the personification of the Southwestern wind. But, right. you know, the the film, for somebody watching the first time, uh, has to still kind of give this... Um, uh, give these context clues so the mm-hmm. folks watching mm-hmm. understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like uh, so much of the scenes previous to this one in the desert, there's just that, you know, that 
constant wind that you're hearing. And mm-hmm. then we get to Georgetown and it, you know, it's, it's kind of gone. And then here we are, there's this, it might seem like an innocuous thing, like, Oh, it's a window to the person to Chris. It's an innocuous thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But for us in the audience, we're like, Oh, that's the wind. That's the wind. Pazuzu's already here. Ah. Oh, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but of course, right. Cause we've been going from, um, we have this this uh, plain uh, noise that makes it sound like it's a journey, right? And and I guess uh, we were thinking mm-hmm. of that being Father Marin you now going to Georgetown or something, mm-hmm. or you know, even just emotionally, we are going to Georgetown. But yeah, Pazuzu flew mm-hmm. in through the window. Who left this window open? <laughs> I love that. So yeah. So uh, for whatever reason, um, Chris, uh, she seems puzzled but not alarmed, like we were saying. So she turns and. Uh, to your guys's point, she turns and opens the door to her daughter's bedroom. She peers in and we have a brief shot of her daughter, Reagan, asleep in bed. Now we're going to get to Reagan. We're going to get to the actress, um, in upcoming minutes. Uh, but for now, we only see her very, very briefly. Uh, and then the camera moves to the open window, curtains fluttering in a strong breeze that we can, we can now hear, right? Right. This wind is so important that we are, it is given a sound. We are, we are, uh, we acknowledge it, um, both visually and, uh, auditorially. And I, again, I'm not sure how much we're supposed to notice this on the first viewing, uh, but it is very hmm. prominent that Reagan is, uh, you know, we're being told that she's in a very cold room, but she has the covers off. Yes, yes, the covers are are completely off, uh, off, and she's, she's laying in bed, uh, without the covers. And yeah, we might not catch that at first because we see Reagan first mm-hmm. and the covers are off and then uh the we see the window open and then um uh, uh um Chris moves to close it and from the way that she holds herself we can tell that this room is very very cold right is right. it from the open window it must be right um so even as she moves to close it another crash is heard from the attic uh something is not right in this house. Yeah, and again, it changed from the screenplay that the noise in the screenplay and the book is coming from Reagan's room, and now in the movie, it's coming from the attic. Right. Um, now, she reaches the window, and she closes it, uh, clutching herself in the cold of the room, and that is where we must stop for now. Um, gentlemen, is there anything else that we can think of for this minute? I do want to point out, again, because I really love this disconnect that you pointed out. So a lot of the times that... that um, that we get to talk. I mean, you're bringing up things that make me reevaluate um, how the movie is working. And yeah, this idea that the noises that, that um, Chris is listening to or, or reacting to don't match our understanding of them. Cause then again, of course those noises are not the ones that Ellen Burson would be responding to on set. Um, they wouldn't be playing uh, sound effects on set or having somebody off off stage like rattling something. It'd be normally that um, she's being cued by either Friedkin or the assistant director and saying, um, now there's a noise from off screen or Ellen, they just say Ellen and then Ellen responds to the screen um, or to the noise. So, you know, Ellen Burstyn probably was not aware of what the noise would be be in the finished film because they're making that later on through the Foley artist, the guy who's making the, um, the special effects. Um, so yeah, the guy who's making the special effects, the Foley artist is actually looking at the cut of the picture, the, the cut of the video, um, the visual information, and then making sounds to respond to that rather than the other way around. So they've made a conscious choice, you know, to not, um, to not have something that looks minor or looks just annoying. They made something that sounds really, terrifying that she's just not quite noticing 
I got, I, I feel so silly. I didn't even realize you know, you're absolutely right. Like she wouldn't be reacting to that exact sound because there would be no sound on the day. There would be no sound, right? All right. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's it folks. Oh, Ian, did you have anything? I know. I think we covered it all. Okay. I think we did. I think we did. We did. This was a good minute, guys. (laughs) All right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with you first, Ian. Ian, are you, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I'm thinking what you're thinking. Okay. And, uh, Keenan, how about you? Are you thinking what me and Ian are thinking? I think I am Ian and Lester. Okay. All right, folks. Until next time. The The power power of Dracula. Dracula. Hello. 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 Ha, ha, ha.